OK, so I'm back, obviously. Um, I know that things are difficult when the instructor keeps changing and um, the style of lecture keeps changing and all of that. So uh, I'm, I apologize for the difficulty that that's caused. Hopefully, um, things will go smoothly the rest of the semester. Um, I plan to try to improve the continuity a little bit by having a review session next Wednesday in class. So we had originally scheduled that to be another day of lecture on gravitation. But I think it's probably more useful for me to review um, what's been covered, at least since the second midterm, so that I know you've heard it from me before I give you the test. And it's always, always useful to have a review. So that's the plan. What that means is we're going to be covering gravitation today. Uh, you'll have all that you need to do the homework. Homework 11 is due on uh, Sunday night. That's the equilibrium homework on chapter 11. The homework on chapter 12 is also due Sunday night. Okay, So it's listed as two separate homeworks, just to keep the notation. Homework 11 is chapter 11. Homework 12 is chapter 12. They're both due Sunday night. They're both half as long as a normal homework assignment. Okay, So it shouldn't mean any more work. And the reason that I did it that way uh, is largely because we have a test on Monday. So you should be covering, you should be practicing this uh, gravitational stuff um, prior to the test. So I would expect that everyone would want to do the homework before being tested on anyways. So uh, that's actually going to be the due date. Any questions? Any suggestions for things for me to review on Wednesday? Chapter 11, that was equilibrium. Angular momentum, okay. But they're actually almost all of them. Yeah, okay. almost the whole thing. Okay. Okay, so obviously I can't reteach you know a month of stuff, but um, that's fine. I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll try to give you a review of everything that I think you need to know for the, the second exam. The third exam? Yeah. Okay. Um, if you have questions you want to go over in more uh, personal detail. I'm back with office hours after class, so you can stop by after this class today or on Wednesday after class, or we can set up a time if none of those times work for you. Okay, so today what we're going to do is use clickers. So if you're walking in and you don't have one yet, um, you can come up and get one now. We're going to be discussing gravity. So we've talked about gravity a little bit. We know that gravity exerts a force on objects. The force is equal to mg for objects near the surface of the Earth. Right? Everything we've done that involves gravity has been near the surface of the Earth, which makes sense because that's where we live. But there's a lot of interesting things going on in, in space. Gravity is a primary force that mediates the interaction between astrophysical objects. So we'll look at what happens when you're not near the surface of the Earth. How does gravity behave? What are the equations we use to describe it? And that comes from Newton's law of gravitation, which, disclaimer, is not the modern theory of gravity. We're learning an old theory, not the modern theory. Modern theory, does anybody know what the modern theory of gravity is called? Or who created it? Yeah. What's that? Why don't you teach us on the modern instead of That's what I'm getting at. Uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, general theory of relativity from 1916. It's a modern theory of gravity. 
In order to explain that, you need about three years of graduate school. Okay, so, and it turns out that Newton's theory of gravity will work perfectly well for virtually everything you'll ever do. Okay, so it's only for very extreme cases where there's a difference. That difference can be important in understanding things about how the universe started, the Big Bang, uh, subtle things like that. For understanding how a satellite moves in orbit, how an object falls when you drop it, those can be completely understood using Newton's theory of gravity. So that's, that's why we won't be doing the most recent theory, but I wanted you to understand that, um, that that's the case. Okay, so uh, Newton's law of gravitation, we'll write it out mathematically in a moment, but the two relationships that he recognized was that gravity is the force between objects that have mass. Okay, and we said mass is somehow the amount of stuff in an object. We tend to think of mass as how heavy something is, but it's also the amount of stuff in an object. And because there's all this mass in an object, it gets attracted to other things with mass. Okay, so it, gravity is a force that's proportional to the mass of each attracting object. Okay, so you have to have two objects attracting each other. Each of them has mass. And the more mass one object has, the stronger the gravitational pull between them. And likewise, the more mass the other object has, the stronger they pull. Uh, you may remember a demo we did when we talked about Newton's laws, where we had two chairs down here. And I think it was Logan and Chris who held on to some ropes and pulled on them, and they got pulled together. Right? And if one of them is pulling really hard, they get pulled together really fast. If the other person is pulling really hard, they get pulled together fast. Same idea here. Regardless of which object has a lot of mass, if one of them or both of them have a lot of mass, then the attraction of gravity will be strong. Um, the magnitude of the attraction will be inversely proportional to their separation squared. So the further away two objects are, the, less, the more weakly they interact through gravity. Okay, so we can summarize that with this equation. This is the universal gravitational law. Okay, so that's, this is basically, um, if you learn one thing from chapter 12, that's it. And it says what we already said. Okay, so the force of gravity, which we're calling F sub G, is directly proportional to the mass in the two attracting objects. So let's say this is the force between object one and object two. Then the greater the mass of either object, the stronger the force. The magnitude of the force is inversely proportional to the separation squared. So that says r squared in the denominator. So r is the distance between mass one and mass two. Okay, we'll see a little bit later on that if you have an extended object like the Earth, and let's say a person or a ball sitting here on the surface, we treat that distance as the distance between the center of masses. Okay. It's not the separation of their edges, it's the separation of their center of masses. And in fact, everything we do when we talk about gravity, when we talk about objects, we're going to treat them as if they're located at their center of mass. Okay, so 
these two expressions take care of the m's and they take care of the r. And that leaves one thing here, which is just the constant of proportionality, which turns this expression on the right side into some number that has units of force. Okay, So g is just a constant of proportionality. It's called the universal gravitational constant. It's a number that you can look up in a textbook. It's a constant, so it doesn't depend on anything. It doesn't depend on what planet you're on. It doesn't depend on the speed that you're moving or the uh, wind resistance. Or There's no sort of dependence. It's a constant. And we use a capital G here to denote that that's not the same as little g. Little g we've used to describe the uh, acceleration of an object due to gravity near the surface of the Earth. And this does not assume that you're near the surface of the Earth. Okay, so we'll see in a moment how we can relate that big G to the little g. Okay, so that value g was first measured uh, about 300 years ago by Henry Cavendish in an experiment that looked like this. Um, this is called a torsional pendulum. And what it is is it's a, it's a string hanging down and then a barbell at the end of the string. And the idea is that you can twist it very easily. So a small force pushing on either of the barbells will produce a torque that can cause it to rotate. And by placing these large, massive objects very close to the barbells, the gravitational force between this massive object and the barbell could cause this to twist. And you can measure how much it twists. This is a modern version of the experiment where a laser reflects off of a mirror on the torsional pendulum. But Cavendish did it basically using uh, needles and a scale. You measure how much this twists, and that tells you how much force is being applied. And then you can work out, if you know the force between these objects, and you know their separation, you know their masses, you can find that constant of proportionality. So that constant is uh, 6.67 times 10 to the minus 11 Newton meter squared per kilogram squared. It's a small number. Okay, In terms of the uh, fundamental units, a newton, a kilogram, a meter. These, this is a small number, and that means that gravity is a very weak force. It's weak in the sense that it's not important unless you have a lot of mass. We wouldn't talk about the gravitational interaction of this eraser and this, this pointer, because they're both relatively low mass. And the force pulling them together is insignificant compared to the forces uh, on them due to the Earth. Okay, So because g is a small number, gravity is a relatively small force. Okay, So how does this big G relate to the little g that we've been discussing? for the force on an object near the surface of the Earth. So we can understand that by considering the Earth as an object. And let's say an apple sitting up here. Maybe it's on a table. If we just considered that apple sitting on a table, we said, what are the forces on it? How would we describe the gravitational force? 
Yeah, so if the apple has a mass m, right, let me call it m sub a for the mass of the apple, the gravitational force on it we've been saying is mg. And that assumes that it's near the surface of the Earth, okay? which, which is the case if it's just sitting here on this table. But the universal gravitational law tells us that the force of gravitation is gm1m2 over r squared. So let's see how we can make, reconcile those two things. Let's plug in some values, or at least identify some of these terms as they apply to this system. Um, what are the two masses that are attracting each other when this apple is pulled down? It's the Earth and the apple. Okay, so previously we've not really considered the effect of, or not explicitly considered the effect of the Earth, but now we will. So let's call this mass of the Earth and the mass of the apple rather than m1 and m2. Um, what about r? r is the separation of the Earth and the apple. So it's a, it, it is a distance. So maybe this is the ground. Maybe the table is a height h. What is the value that I should plug in here? Yeah, it's. It's, it's not just the height of the table. It's the height of the table plus the radius of the Earth. So if that's the radius of the Earth, and this is the height of the table, then what you find is that it doesn't really matter whether you add the height of the table or not. This is about 10 to the 6 meters. This is about 1 meter. So if you add them together, this only has an effect on the sixth decimal point. Okay, so. Um, Let's write this Let me say this is approximately equal to, and that accounts for the fact that this distance here isn't exactly the distance from the apple to the center of the Earth, but it's close enough for our purposes. We'll just plug in the value of the radius of the Earth. And this gives us an expression for the force on that apple. G we can look up in our textbook. And we had that on the last slide. It's just a number. I can plug it in. The mass of the Earth, likewise, is a number that I can plug in. And the radius of the Earth, also, is a number that I can look up and plug in. So these three parameters in that box are basically constants. One is a constant, and the other two are just numbers that have been measured that aren't changing uh, significantly. So if I wanted to calculate the force on an apple, or the force on a calculator, or force on a ball being thrown, every time I went to evaluate it using the universal gravitational law, I'd have to plug in the same values right, and do that math. So what we do is you calculate this ahead of time. It works out to be, can anyone guess? what that will work out to be if you plug it into your calculator? It'll work out to be 9.8 meters per second squared. Okay, So we give that a name, and we call that little g. Right, and so we have the mass of the apple 
And then everything that affects the gravitational force that doesn't depend on the apple is included in little g. Okay? And on the surface of the Earth, little g is a number that we have a value for that's basically independent of where you are. Now, it's going to vary slightly depending on whether you're on the top of a mountain or you're in a valley. So that's going to affect how far away you are from the center of the Earth. But again, it's very slight. And for most of our calculations where we only use two or three decimal places, you'd never notice that difference. Um, ExxonMobil just recorded the largest profit in US history um, last quarter. And they said they put $6 billion of their profit into new oil exploration. Most of that money that goes into new oil exploration goes into measuring the value of little g all over the Earth, very precisely, to more decimal places than 9.80. Any thoughts on why they would want to do that? Sam? Yeah. So it turns out that if you're in a valley, right, you're a little closer to the center of the Earth. So little g would be, I guess, a little higher. Um, and if you're higher up, it would be a little smaller. But it turns out if there's a pocket of oil underneath you, oil is a little less dense than the granite or rock that would otherwise be there. That also affects the value of little g. Okay, so it's we're not going to consider an inhomogeneous Earth in our calculations, but if you do things very carefully and you consider the effect of an inhomogeneous Earth, you find that things like oil can be not directly discovered, but you can at least get some sense on where it might be smart to drill by very carefully measuring little g. So little g is not a constant, I guess is what you should take away from this. It depends on these properties of the Earth or whatever planet or object you happen to be measuring the gravity on. And it's just shorthand as a way to uh, calculate the force of gravity without having to recalculate a bunch of parameters that would be the same in many repetitive measurements. Any questions? OK, then I've got questions for you that we will use our clickers for. So go ahead and turn them on. Uh, if you remember from last time, it should scan and look for a class ID. You can just enter D, D enter if you don't want to wait for it to finish scanning. You don't need to enter anything for your student ID. I don't need that information. And then it should confirm that you're registered in Phys 50 SCI, basically the, this registration number that's up there. OK, so it looks like people have joined. There's 21. So um, let me assume that everyone's got their clickers working. Let me read the question before I open the, uh, the polling. Let's say you've got uh, the Earth and the Moon. And you know that the Moon has a mass that's 
one eighty-first, eighty-one-th that of the Earth. It's 81 times less massive. So given that, compared to the gravitational force that the Earth exerts on the Moon, the gravitational force that the Moon exerts on the Earth is Take about 10 seconds to get your answer in if you haven't already. And it looks like most people are choosing choice three. A few with choice four and five. Let's see, three says equally strong. Can anybody tell me why they chose equally strong? Yes. Yeah, so you can change, if you swap, it's called commuting in mathematical lingo, but if you swap the values of m1 and m2, it doesn't change the force of gravity. So the distance from the Earth to the Moon is the same as the distance from the Moon to the Earth. G is the same. Does anybody have another way of describing that? Yeah, so Newton's third law is, is another way of saying that. The Earth acts on the Moon, the Moon acts on the Earth, and the forces have to be the same. Okay, good. So, look at the next one. The planet Saturn has 100 times the mass of the Earth and is 10 times more distant from the Sun than the Earth is. So compared to the Earth's acceleration as it orbits the Sun, remember Newton's second law tells us the acceleration of the Earth is proportional to the force on the Earth. Compared to that of the Earth, the acceleration of the Sun is
have a few seconds to get your answer in if you haven't done it yet. So it looks like the thought process is pretty scattered. Let's see if we can work it out on the board. In this case, so in the last case, we had two objects attracting each other. right? And so we said you could interchange them. It w Newton's third law said the forces between them is the same. But here it's the force between the Earth and a third object and Saturn and a third object being the Sun. Okay, So the force of the Sun on the Earth we can find using the gravitational law. And we'll use the mass of the Earth and the mass of the Sun. This little circle with a dot through it is standard notation for representing the solar properties. That's the mass of the sun. The radius of the earth to the sun. Okay, so this is the expression for the force that the sun exerts on the earth. That's what's responsible for us accelerating a circle or nearly circular orbit around the sun. Yes? I'm sorry? Oh, I, I have no idea. Sorry. OK, so this is the force. Force, according to Newton's second law, equals ma. And so if we're talking about the acceleration, we can cancel out the effect, in this case, of the Earth's mass. So if we do the same thing for Saturn, we might expect that the mass of Saturn will cancel out. So it's not really important that Saturn is 100 times more massive. That makes its gravitational force 100 times greater, but it takes 100 times greater force to accelerate 100 times greater mass. Mass of the sun is the same. The radius from the sun to Saturn, it said, was 10 times that from the Earth to the sun. So the difference between these two equations is a factor of 1 over 10 squared. Okay, That was. Uh, choice five. Force is one one hundredth is great. Okay, so actually, most people got that one right, or more people got that right than anything else. So that's good. Okay, now we have an unknown planet, planet X. It has twice the mass and twice the radius as the Earth. So before we go any further. Is that planet the same dent? Is it made of the same stuff as the Earth? No. What, what does the material have to be? Is it be denser or less dense? It has to be less dense, actually. Because when it's twice the size, it has eight times the volume, but only twice the mass. So this is something that's less dense than what the Earth is made of. But uh, given that, compared to the Earth, planet X has and let's try to figure out how much stronger or weaker gravity at the surface.
Okay, so most people chose choice four, half as much surface gravity. Okay, so we can look at our expressions for the acceleration due to gravity at the surface. That's comes from the first three terms in this universal gravitational constant, universal gravitational law. It's independent of the object placed near the near the surface. That's fine. We're not interested in uh, how heavy a certain object is. We just want the relative strength of gravity. So let's evaluate little g for the Earth. It's g times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius of the Earth squared. And we can do the same thing for planet x. It's just got a different mass and a different radius. So we're told that mass of planet x is twice that of the Earth. And the radius is twice that of the Earth. And because the radius gets squared, this term in the denominator looks like 4 re squared. <coughs> which works out to be half the acceleration due to gravity on the Earth. Okay, So people did pretty well on that. Any questions? Then you can turn your clickers off. We'll go on. We'll do uh, maybe one more example of directly calculating forces. And we'll talk about potential energy and some consequences of all of this. So let's consider a very common object, um, a hydrogen atom. This is the simplest atom. It has a proton and an electron. Those are two objects that are very close to each other. We might think because they're so close, the gravitational forces between them might be strong. So let's calculate how strong it is. This is a case where we need the universal gravitational law, Newton's gravitational law, because neither of these, we're not talking about the Earth pulling on the objects. We're talking about two different objects. Neither of them is the Earth, so we can't just use little g, say the force is mg. OK, so we can look up the values for the mass of each of these objects and their separation. Their typical separation is given by a quantity called the Bohr radius, the size of a hydrogen atom. It's about 10 to the minus 10 meters. And the masses are small, small compared to everyday values because there's very little stuff in them. Those, that's an elementary particle. It doesn't have a lot of stuff making it up. So we have masses that are on the order of 10 to the minus 27 and 10 to the minus 30. So here's our expression. We just have to plug in values. If we want a numerical value, we have to plug in the numerical value for g, which comes from our textbook. The mass of the proton, sorry, the mass of the electron and the mass of the proton, you can also find in our textbook. And then the Bohr radius, or the separation, the typical separation of the mass of the uh, electron and proton. When we multiply all these numbers together, 
what we see is we have a whole bunch of small numbers in the numerator and a small number in the denominator. Turns out the small numbers in the numerator win. We get about 2 times 10 to the minus 50 newtons. So it's a very small force. Okay, if we were to compare that to the electrostatic interaction between them, we'd see it's, it's completely negligible. Okay, so we don't need to consider gravity acting on objects, between objects that have negligible mass. It's only when an object has a very large amount of mass that it becomes significant. That's why gravity is usually talked about in terms of stars, black holes, planets, things that have a large quantity of mass. Chris? Yes. Um, you could put that on your note card. I don't know. I, I, I have to wait until I write the exam to say if it's even relevant. I'll let you know on Wednesday. How's that? Okay, so... That's the force of gravity. And in the beginning of this class, we talked about forces. Um, that was chapter 4 and 5. And then we talked about energy, chapter 6 and 7. Um, it's sort of an alternative way of thinking how objects interact. So let's look at the gravitational potential energy. So we can derive the gravitational potential energy by considering the work done by gravity. It's work done by gravity when two objects are brought together from in infinitely far away. So let's say you've got two objects, maybe the Earth and the Moon. And initially they're infinitely far away, so they don't interact at all. What's the gravitational force between them? zero if they're infinitely far away. So here's our expression for the force. If you make them far enough away, then they don't interact. But as if you were to take them and just grab each one and bring them together, what you'd find is they started, as they start to come together, they're going to attract each other. Okay, and so there's work being done on you as you bring them together. They're going into a state of lower potential energy. Okay. Another way of saying it is it would take work to separate the Earth and the Moon. They're being pulled towards each other. You'd have to push them away. and It would take work to do that. If we can figure out how much work it takes to separate them, that tells us something about how much potential energy they had when they were together that we had to overcome to separate them. So work is force dotted with displacement. Here's the gravitational force. If we dot that with a displacement, so let's bring these together by an amount delta r. And they're being pulled together by a force of gravity. And the work done moving them a distance delta r is just force of gravity dotted with delta r. And if we add that up, or we integrate it over the entire distance between them, 
or from, dis from a separation of R2 to a separation of R1, so call that R2, and then let them come together, call this distance R1. The work we did in bringing them from here to here must have gone somewhere. Work is a transfer of energy. So where did the energy go? It goes into potential energy. So the potential energy of the system must have changed. So there must be some potential energy here of this system and some potential energy here. And they must be different. And they must be equal to the work done in bringing them from situation 2 to situation 1. Okay, so you can do this integral. And I know that um, most of you have probably taken integral calculus at this point, but it's not a prereq for the course. So let me just quote the result. The result has two terms, one that depends on the position r2 and one that depends on position r1. We can recognize this. This must be, this term here depends on how far apart they are, r2, and this depends on r1. So this must be the potential energy at r2, and this must be the potential energy at r1. So we can just generalize this and say, when the objects are separated by a distance r, their potential energy is a term that looks like this. So that's written right here. So objects 1 and object 2 that have mass m1 and m2, when separated by distance r, must have a potential energy of minus gmm over r. Yeah? Why is it negative? So it's a good question. So if r goes to infinity, if they're infinitely far apart, then the objects don't interact. Right? They're far enough away that the force of gravitation is negligible between them. If we define that as our location where there's zero potential energy, okay, just like we can define the floor as the location where, say, a ball has zero potential energy, and then we can lift it up, we'd say it has positive energy. If we lower it, somehow digging a hole in the floor or dropping it off of a building and go below where we started, then it has negative potential energy. So an object can have positive or negative potential energy. It's just whether it's more or less than where you define zero to be. So we try to think about where we should define zero potential energy to be for a system of two objects. Right? This equation tells us that as they get closer and closer together, this potential energy will always go up. At what point does it stop going up? When they collide. But what does it mean to collide? If they're point particles, if we treat them as points, they can always get closer and closer together. Potential energy can always go up and up and up and up and up. So there's, it never reaches a maximum. So there's no logical place to say, OK, that's as high as it's ever going to be. So instead, we do the opposite. We say when you pull them apart, it gets less and less and less. And the potential energy is a function of separation of two objects. Looks like looks like this. 
So pull them apart, the potential energy gets uh, becomes constant. It asymptotically approaches a value. We call that value 0. So we arbitrarily define this to be 0 potential energy when they're infinitely far apart. And then when we say they get closer, to, closer and closer together, we know their potential energy must go down. Okay, just like you drop an apple, it gets closer to the Earth. Its potential energy decreases. Okay, so the objects are getting closer together. The potential energy decreases. Now it's decreasing below 0 instead of decreasing towards 0. Okay, so it's just it's a definition of what we mean by 0 potential energy. That's where that negative sign comes from. OK, so we can do a couple interesting things with this. This might make it uh, maybe a little more clear. We can consider um, what's called the escape velocity. The idea is that if you take an object and you launch it off the surface of the Earth, meaning you throw it, Eventually, what's it going to do? It's going to come back down. If you throw it up, it's going to come back down. Um, it's not entirely true. If you launch it fast enough, it can keep going. Right? That we've sent spacecraft that have not come back. So it's possible to do that. Um, so there's some speed you need to throw it at or launch it at in order to get it to break free of the Earth's gravitational field, or break free of the attraction of the Earth, and continue going on forever. That speed we call the escape velocity. Let's calculate what it is. We'll calculate what it is for the Earth. We'll see that it depends on the planet that you're on. And we'll use conservation of energy to do that. So here's the Earth. And here's a rocket sitting on the surface of the Earth. Uh, the first manned space flight went like that. It didn't orbit the Earth. It didn't leave the Earth's gravitational field. It just went up above the atmosphere and came back down. And then later on, there were orbital flights like that. And then it wasn't until lunar flights that the rockets actually left the gravitational pull of the Earth and entered that of the moon. Okay, So let's do this. Let's look at the condition necessary for this rocket ship to get free of the Earth, to leave its gravitational pull behind, and get far enough away that the gravitational pull of the Earth becomes negligible. And at that point, as long as it's still going forward, it will coast through space, and it will go on indefinitely. Okay, So over here, if we consider two, two points, an initial point at launch, and a final point when it's infinitely far away from the Earth. We can say energy is conserved. 
So whatever energy it had when it left the Earth, it has to have the same amount of energy over here. Okay, now when it leaves the Earth's atmosphere, it's got its rockets blaring, it's accelerated to very high speed, then it turns off its rockets, the fuel burns out, it's moving with a very high speed, so it's got a lot of kinetic energy. What happens to that kinetic energy as it goes over here? <coughs> it gets converted into potential energy, right? In the process, it slows down. So if it loses kinetic energy, it slows down. Okay, so over here we have um, potential energy. And no kinetic energy. Whereas over here we have sort of the opposite, right? We have a kinetic energy 1 half mv squared and a potential energy that's, we just call it small. Okay, so another way of saying this is we're going to require that it get infinitely far away and have a velocity that's at least zero, meaning it's at least still, it's still going away or it's stopped, but it's not going back. Okay, so we're trying to find the minimum value for the initial velocity, the escape velocity, that will allow it to be infinitely far away and still moving away from us. Okay, so we use conservation of energy. There's no friction because there's no drag as it travels through empty space. So we have the initial energy equals the final energy. The initial potential energy we can get by evaluating this expression. Okay, now it may be at the surface of the Earth, but we're not going to say it has zero potential energy. Okay, we often will say something at the surface of the Earth at a height of zero has no potential energy. Because we frequently call the ground our reference point, where we have no potential energy. But when we do with universal gravitational effects, we consider infinitely far away as having zero potential energy. So if the potential energy is zero over here, it has to be smaller than that over here. So it has to be negative. Minus g times mass of the Earth, mass of the spacecraft, divided by what value do I plug in for r? The radius of the Earth, yeah. The distance from this Earth to the spacecraft. Okay, then it has kinetic energy, 1 half mb squared. No, it's not. It's not squared here because this is a potential energy expression. You'll notice in this expression, it looks a lot like the expression for the force, except it doesn't have this squared. It's negative and it doesn't have this squared. Energy is a force times a distance. Okay, so it's going to have different dimensions. 
फिर ठीक है They're both zero. Its kinetic energy is zero because we say it's come to rest. It's no longer moving. Of course, if we launch it with more speed, then it will have some leftover kinetic energy and will keep moving. And its potential energy is zero. Why is its potential energy zero from the equation? Yeah, because r is infinite, infinity. So it, that gives uh, a value of zero. Okay, so I can solve this for the escape velocity, right? And what I'm going to find is that because masses cancel out, the escape velocity will be the same regardless of the mass of the object. Um, so I'll just bring this term over here. I'll multiply both sides by 2. And that was supposed to be squared, so I take the square root. And that tells me how fast the object has to move to leave the surface of the Earth. Okay? If I'm not on the Earth, if I'm on the Moon, I wouldn't plug in these values. I'd plug in the lunar values. Turns out it's a lot easier to launch something off the Moon. Right? The mass is less. The radius is less. But it turns out as the radius decreases, the volume decreases by r cubed. And the mass decreases faster than the radius. So. Sam? This M is the mass of the spacecraft, or whatever we're launching. This is the mass of the planet that we're on. Okay, and so the escape velocity doesn't depend on the mass of the object being launched. The, potential ener the total energy has to equal zero for the object to escape the gravitational field the gravitational attraction of the planet. Yeah? So both the initial and the final energies are zero? Yes. Conservation of energy says they're going to be the same. And the moment we say the final <laughs> energy is zero, that means the initial energy had to be zero, too. Escape. This is V escape. This is mass of Earth, radius of Earth. Any other questions? Okay, uh, let's plug in some values. You can look up the mass and radius of the Earth and calculate that that escape velocity is about uh, 11 kilometers per second, or about 25,000 miles per hour. So you're not going to just you know, throw an object and have it leave the Earth. If you were, if you were an astronaut and you landed on a very small asteroid, though, it might be possible to throw something and have it leave the asteroid and never come back. Tim? Can you match the acceleration of gravity? 
No, you can't. We have to use energy. We have to use this, uh, this idea of conservation of energy because we, we need to relate what's going on at the Earth, which is it's moving really fast, to what's going on over here infinitely far away, which is it's infinitely far away. It needs to get to this point. And if you only consider the acceleration due to gravity pulling down, um, there's nothing, you can't write an expression that accounts for the fact that it needs to get to this point out here. So you have to use energy methods here. That's the initial velocity. If you said, okay, we have these equations that tell us um, if that's the velocity, we know the acceleration is little g, and it's going to slow down. Um, that wouldn't work, because what happens is um, if you calculated, say, how high an object goes using those expressions, those kinematic expressions from chapter 3, what you'd find is it goes so high that those expressions are no longer valid. Those expressions are only valid when the acceleration is constant. Acceleration is not constant here. It's being pulled hard by the Earth initially, and the further and further away it gets, the weaker and weaker the acceleration of gravity becomes. It is really fast. And in practice, the objects aren't launched with that type of velocity. They're launched slower, and they orbit the Earth, building up that velocity over time while they're outside of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, let me highlight a calculation. I'm not going to go through the full calculation just because uh, I don't have time to cover all that I would want to. Um, but you could ask, how much energy does it take to move one kilogram of mass from the Earth to the moon? And this is a very similar calculation, except that your final location is not infinitely far away. It's, this, it's on the surface of the moon. So you have some initial energy which comes from the gravitational potential energy of the Earth plus the gravitational potential energy of the Moon. Some final energy that depends on the gravitational potential energy of the Earth and the Moon. And you can calculate the change in potential energy as you move one kilogram of mass from the Earth to the Moon. And it's about, uh, about 10 to the 8 joules of energy. And to put that into perspective, that's about the energy contained in one gallon of gasoline. Uh, but that's how much energy it takes to move one kilogram. A gallon of gas is about four kilograms. So this type of argument was used at one point uh, by a number of scientists to say it was impossible to ever send a man-made object to the moon. Because the, just the mass of the fuel necessary to get it there exceeded the cargo capacity of, of, of the ship. Um, Okay, well, it turns out that argument isn't right. I mean, the calculation is, but you don't end up moving all the fuel. The fuel burns off and gets left behind. Um, you use things that are a little more energetic than gasoline and such. But. A couple more things I wanted to point out um, are the Shell Theorem. The Shell Theorem is, is derived in your book, and I have it in the lecture notes. I'm not going to derive it, but I want to point out the results of it. Um, it's a very powerful theorem that allows you to treat the gravitational force acting on a point due to some mass distribution 
as if that entire mass distribution is located at the center of mass. That's what the Shell theorem is. There's two parts to it. The first part says is if this point is outside of your mass distribution, so think of this as the Earth. If you have a point outside the Earth, when you calculate the gravitational force on an object there, you can use the mass of the Earth and treat it as if it's all located at the center. And that's what we've been doing. So without rigorously deriving that that's the right way to do it, we've been using that uh, Shell theorem already. What's less intuitive is what happens inside the shell. So let's say you dug a tunnel into, towards the center of the Earth. So you were significantly towards the center of the Earth. And you were to ask, what is the gravitational force you feel? Turns out it would be less than that on the surface. And you might, that's a, maybe a little counterintuitive. You think, well, you're closer to the center. As you get closer, the gravitational force should increase. But what actually happens is, consider yourself, let's consider ourselves right in the middle, right in the center of the Earth. Which direction would gravity pull us? Well, we've got some mass up here. Which direction would that mass pull us? Up and to the right. The mass that's over here would pull us in which direction? Down and to the left. And those forces would cancel. Likewise, the forces on these sides would cancel. The net force that we would feel is zero. The center of the Earth, you wouldn't feel any gravitational force. No net gravitational force. Um, if you were out a point over here, sort of on the edge, what you'd see is that to the right of you, you'd have a little bit of mass that's very close. And to the left of you, you'd have a lot of mass that on average is further away. And the forces from those two parts would cancel out as well. What it says is any mass that's further away from, from you, or further away from the center of mass than you are, doesn't contribute to the gravitational force you feel. So let's consider a couple cases. And let me kind of motivate why this is called the Shell Theorem. Um, so here's the Earth. Let's put a mountaintop here and a valley down there. The way you can calculate the force of gravity more explicitly is by breaking up the spherical Earth into a bunch of shells. So shell is a spherical object that's two-dimensional. Okay, so it's hollow, a hollow shell. Think of it like an onion, a bunch of layers of the onion. Right? And you can calculate the gravitational force that each layer exerts. Right? And that's, that's done here with a bunch of calculus that I'm not going into. So this is calculating the gravitational force just due to this layer, this shell this layer of the onion, and assuming that it's hollow on the inside and there's no mass on the outside, and all this mass is exactly a distance r away. Um, if you do that, you, can, you find that if you're outside the shell, 
You can treat all the masses at the center. If you're inside the shell, you can neglect the effect of the shell. Okay, so if you're right here in a valley, you can consider there being two parts. There's essentially everything that's below you, and there's all the mass that's, I'll call it above you. It's further out than you are. And it's only the stuff that's below you that contributes to the gravitational force you'd feel. So as you, if you're a distance x away from the center of the Earth, the force of gravity that you'd feel is 0 at the center. We already said that. And we know that when x equals the radius of the Earth, the force of gravity you'd feel is mg. And then we also know that as you get further beyond the radius of the Earth, the force of gravity you feel decreases as 1 over r squared. So I'm plotting this as a function of x, the distance away I am from the center of the Earth. And what happens in between here is actually increases linearly. <coughs> so as you get further and further away, the amount of mass that's closer to the center of the spherical mass distribution than you are increases as x cubed, the volume. But the strength of the force decreases as x squared. The result is it increases as, as x. So. You're on the top of a mountain. The gravitational force you feel is less than at the surface. If you're in a valley, the gravitational force you feel is less than at the surface. OK. Um, I was going to prove this with a lot of math. And originally, we had two days to talk about gravitation. So I figured this was something that you wouldn't mind cutting out, just quoting the result of. Um, do you want to talk about apparent weight, or do you want to talk about black holes? Black holes. Okay. Um, let me plug my computer in so the battery doesn't die on me. Let's see if I did that in time. OK, so we'll skip the apparent weight stuff. Talk about black holes. Um, we said earlier that you can use conservation of energy, kinetic energy plus potential energy at the surface of an object, equaling zero energy when it's infinitely far away and not moving, to figure out what the minimum speed you need to move is, the escape velocity, to escape the object. What happens if that escape velocity is unattainable, if it's greater than the speed of light? We know that nothing moves faster than the speed of light. So you can ask, what happens if uh, this escape velocity which we calculated was square root of 2gm over r. What happens if, when you calculate that, it's greater than the speed of light? Nothing can escape. Light itself can't escape. Okay, So um, setting the escape velocity equal to the speed of light, we can solve for the radius of the object. And what we find is that 
if the radius of the object equals 2g times the mass of the object over the speed of light squared, then light itself can't escape from the object. Okay, or if the radius is any smaller than that. So I'll go back to the last slide. If the radius gets smaller, the escape velocity gets bigger. So if you take a certain amount of mass and you compact it tightly enough, eventually it should get to the point that even light can't escape from it. And that's what we call a black hole. For a long time, this was a theoretical construct, and there was very little evidence, very few ways to test this. You can't see a black hole. right? Light can't escape from it. You can't point a telescope at it and observe it. Um, so you have to look for it in other ways. Uh, it's pretty well known now that these are real, that they exist. There's a lot of evidence for it. Um, my research involves looking for the gravitational signatures of black holes. Um, perhaps an easier source of evidence to show is this. This is a movie taken over the course of about 10 years. It's a bunch of pictures. It's a series of still images of the center of the Milky Way. And we'll zoom in, and there's stars that you can actually see moving around. And we'll, when you trace out the location of those stars, you can see that they're, they appear to be orbiting around the center of the, the galaxy. Generally, the reason something orbits around an object is that there's, a massive, there's some mass pulling things in. Right? We orbit around the sun because the sun is pulling us towards it. Um, you can work out where and how massive that object has to be. And you look, and there's nothing there. You can't see, here's, here's a star that's orbiting around a point right here. Um, and it would take about 10 million times the mass of the sun located right here to cause this particular orbit. So there should be something very, very massive there. And yet, it's not at all visible. How long did that take? That was about 10 years. Uh, that last picture is 2006. You can see that in the top left. When did it start? It started in 1992. So it may. What happens is if it has enough, uh, if it's moving fast enough, it will orbit for the same reason that the Earth doesn't get sucked into the sun. We're being pulled towards the sun, but that force doesn't necessarily make us move closer. It just keeps us orbiting in a roughly circular orbit. It provides a centripetal acceleration. What, you'll notice it moves fastest when it's closest to the center. So I have to wait here. I think the next. So there's something hot right there then, right? There's something massive there. And when it gets closer to it, it, it gets sort of, think of it like a slingshot. It gets slung around. Well, so. Astronomers have looked at the center of galaxies. What you can do is you can say galaxies are gravitationally bound. Um, the cluster of stars, they don't just float through space. They stay together. So there must be a reason they stay together. And generally, it's the mass of all the stars in the galaxy that, that keep it clumped. You look out and you measure how many stars you see and you estimate their masses. You can figure out how much mass there is. And sometimes what you find is it's not nearly enough to account for them staying together. And so. If you look at the center of galaxies, that's typically where astronomers look for black holes. 
and uh, this is evidence that, and this is our own galaxy. So if our galaxy has a supermassive black hole in the center, it's likely that lots of others do too. Sam? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you know the mass of the black hole, you could, you, you could estimate the mass of the stars orbiting around it. Um, let's do something kind of fun with black holes. Let's uh, figure out what would happen if we tried to enter one. This is just one very small subset of what would happen. There's a lot of interesting things that happen. When you consider the full uh, general relativistic theory of gravity, um, the coordinates all get turned inside out, and time becomes space, and space becomes time. And just like we can move forwards or backwards in space, you can move forwards or backwards in time. But just like we can move only forwards in time, you can only move forwards in space, where forwards is defined towards the center of the black hole. So interesting things happen when you're inside the black hole. Could you ever get there? Let's estimate the tension on our body as we cross the event horizon. So the event horizon is the, uh, the distance from, with, from inside the, the event horizon, nothing can escape. So it sort of defines the, the radius of the black hole. So let's say we go feet first, and they're two meters long, and the black hole has one solar mass, which is actually pretty conservative. I mentioned that black hole at the center of the, the uh, Milky Way has about one million solar masses. Okay, well, the difference in the force that our head feels and that our feet feel normally is, is insignificant, right? The gravity pulling on my feet is the same strength as the gravity pulling on my head. Um, as you go into the black hole, that's not the case. So we, can, we have an expression for the force of gravity. If we differentiate that with respect to distance, to radius, we can do a first order Taylor series approximation to get the difference in the force between our head and our feet. If these terms don't make sense to you, don't worry about it. I think the result is still uh, interesting enough to make you suffer through the, the, the math. So plugging in the derivative of the force with respect to distance, we get a gmm over r cubed instead of r squared. And we get a minus 2 coming out in the front. And we multiply that by delta r, which in our case is 2 meters. So we plug in the numbers uh, for 2 meters universal gravitational constant, um, our mass, so let's say 50 kilograms, something like that, one solar mass, and what we get is that the difference in force between our head and our feet is about uh, 2 times 10 to the 10 newtons. Right, so that would just snap your body apart. It would snap any normal material apart. Just So you wouldn't want to go there. So what's happening is, as you get closer and closer, the force is getting stronger and stronger. And the change in force is, is even over a two meter distance, is significant enough that your feet are being pulled in so hard that your head can't keep up and pulled you apart. So a lot of interesting things that should happen inside of black holes. Uh, we'll never get to go and observe them. So perhaps a shame. OK, so Newton's law of gravitation tells us how matter interacts through gravity. You can use it for things on the surface of the Earth, but unlike f equals mg, you can also use it for things that aren't near the surface of the Earth. 
when you talk about potential energy, we assume that it's 0 at infinity. And therefore, it's negative everywhere else. Um, the universal gravitational constant is a number that is constant. We should uh, have that on our note card and uh, use that when solving numerical problems. And a lot of interesting things happen when you consider a lot of mass in a very small point. Um, we have black holes and lots of interesting physics that happen. So they're really interesting to study. Unfortunately, we'll never get to go and see them firsthand. <laughs>